This episode is sponsored by Nexo.io and Quantstamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Decentralized, all the things. That meme became popular more than five years ago as Ethereum and other early crypto projects first floated the idea that new decentralized applications could take blockchain technology far beyond Bitcoin's digital currency use case. But achieving this sweeping objective is far more easily said than done. In fact, it has arguably been made harder by the parallel growth of Ethereum and various other competing blockchains, so-called layer one protocols such as Solana and Algorand, because of the lack of interoperability between them. We've evolved into a world of separately siloed blockchain, which even if many are in and of themselves decentralized, means that the overall digital asset ecosystem is not. You can't move your ETH from Ethereum into an AVAX transaction on Avalanche, not without the intervention of a trusted intermediary, in other words, a centralized solution. Seen from this 30,000 foot view, the blockchain world with its promise of a Web3 future in which we control all our own assets actually looks quite similar to the current Web2 world with its siloed social media and internet platforms whose systems don't talk to each other. The problem has not been lost on blockchain developers and it has been an especially big concern for today's guest, one of the industry's most influential developers, Gavin Wood. Gavin was a co-founder of Ethereum and the project's chief technology officer. He later founded Parity Technologies, which initially developed software for Ethereum, but after his departure from the Ethereum Foundation in 2016, went on a different path. Parity's most important output now is Polkadot, an ambitious project that seeks to address this interoperability problem. The principles behind it are core to Gavin's vision for Web3, an idea that he repopularized and gave a crypto edge to with the founding of the Web3 Foundation. Before Gavin joins us to discuss the prospects of a truly decentralized internet, let's welcome Sheila Warren, who made some news of her own this week. For those who don't yet know, Sheila is no longer with the World Economic Forum, as she has assumed the role of CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation. Sheila Warren, congratulations. Thanks, Michael. New week, new title, new new role. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's easy, right? It's not like you're busy, there's nothing going on. Tell us basically what the council does and quickly what your role is going to be. Yeah, well, I am the CEO, so I'm going to be heading up this group of really talented, dedicated industry leaders to help make the case, really land the case with policymakers, with regulators, with people all over the world, uh, that crypto is not only here to stay, but that it is a tremendous engine for opportunity, economic growth, inclusion, all the things that we talk about on the show. So um, yeah, I'm really excited about it. This is, we're recording on day two of, of the job. So I'm really excited that I have a Zoom account and I have email. That seems like a huge oh, off to the right start right now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's it was just time, I think, to jump in with both feet and really try to do everything I can to help uh, really make the case and advocate here on behalf of, of the whole ecosystem. Well, hopefully a lot of the conversations you and I have had over the last year and a half with all sorts of interesting figures around regulation and you know the, the future of this technology is going to be pretty valuable for you as you get Absolutely. these policymakers to see the light. Okay, 
So why don't we bring Gavin in? Gavin Wood, welcome to Money Reimagined. Hi, Michael. Thanks for having me. You're most welcome. So like, before we get into how Polkadot works and the ins and outs, technology and so forth, tell us what brought you to want to create. You know, what were the motives behind this project after you left the Ethereum Foundation? Much the same as the motives that drove me to, um, uh, to pick up Ethereum back in you know, late 2013. Kind of desire to build, but also curiosity. I, I wanted, you know, see if an idea could work. Well, what's the essence of that idea? That interoperability is a piece of this. What's the, the big solution you're trying to get to here? Why did we go down the Ethereum road? It was really, I think one of the early sort of propositions was that this was uh, a platform on which we would do the social experiments of the 21st century. This was something that sort of resonated with me. It, it's the same thing, basically. I wanted to build a better platform for doing these social experiments. You know, there were a bunch of things that I felt could be improved, uh, that I felt, you know, blockchain platforms at the time were not really, were not really doing very well, or that certainly could have been done better. With Polkadot, I really wanted to start afresh and see if we could really solve a lot of these fundamental problems. Nexo is a trusted and easy to use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 18% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. Quantstamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for Quantstamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com careers. So talk to us about how Polkadot works. Maybe you can talk about parachains and just the fundamental mechanics behind it and try to be as layperson friendly as possible, please. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not so easy. So I guess the first thing <laughs> to say is Polkadot's a meta protocol. Now, what, what this means is that it's not like a fixed protocol like Ethereum or Bitcoin. It's a protocol that can evolve over time and change. It basically got a very, very thin layer on the bottom, which is called, uh, basically it's like WebAssembly and LibP2P, two relatively widely accepted technologies, WebAssembly especially. And everything that's built on top of this is, is very easy to change and evolve. You know, in this sense, we've kind of future-proofed Polkadot. Now, beyond that, it's like, well, how do we decide how it's going to change and evolve? So the next element of Polkadot is really governance. It's like, we've got this decentralized decision-making mechanism. We don't want to be like centered around any particular individual, uh, no matter how you know, benevolent and wise they may be. It's still a, a critical risk for a system that is ultimately built to be uh, beyond any individual person or, or organization. So we want to make sure that the decision-making process is similarly uh, decentralized, and that's where the governance comes in. So how do we decide to update Polkadot? How do we decide what, what should come in, what should go out? Some particular mistake should be corrected or whatever else it may be. We have clear and inherently enforced protocol process on this. I think that's very important because all this off-chain stuff, 
ultimately puts the power in relatively opaque, shady decision-making practices that are just not transparent. And oftentimes it's not clear exactly who's, who's calling the shots. So that brings us then on to like, well, okay, we've got the ability to evolve and we understand that we want to like make it, ensure that it's, it's a large sort of stakeholder group that's involved in these sorts of decisions. But what does it actually do? Well, this is where we call, we say, well, Polkadot's a layer zero platform. So you talk about level uh, layer one, so you've got like Ethereum, you know, there are a few others that, that seek to sort of compete with Ethereum. We don't really compete directly with Ethereum. Ethereum's a smart contract platform and smart contracts have, you know, they, they are a particular sort of product or service that you might want for various reasons that I'm sure Ethereum's uh, current adherents will be very pleased to tell you about. But what we want to do with Polkadot is build what might be otherwise considered a decentralized application platform. Ethereum, I remember I in late 2015 in New York, I, I sort of talked at a, a meetup calling Ethereum this kind of world computer. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the sort of notion caught on in Ethereum's blockchain marketing. It was sort of eventually became known as that. But really, I, I sort of beg to differ in retrospect. I don't think it really is the world computer. I don't, I don't think it, it delivers that purpose. It is a smart contract platform. And, and as such, it does do computation as a service but it's quite a different proposition to what we would normally consider as a computer. If I rent a computer, at least a computer, I expect to be able to sort of use it for a period of time before giving up again. Ethereum doesn't really deliver that. Furthermore, if I lease a computer and someone else is using whatever it is that I'm running on the computer, then I, I normally don't have to expose them to whoever, it, like the, the currency or platform restrictions of whoever it is that I'm renting the computer from. Normally, I'm able to resell services that I run on the computer without restriction. Again, that's not really how smart contract platforms work. They work by ensuring that all of the users actually have to have the platform token to use the smart contracts that have been deployed on the smart contract platform. So it really, there is sort of this uh, forced intermediation of the smart contract platform that prevents it really from, in my mind, really being a, a true decentralized. So with Polkadot, we wanted to change this effectively giving economic freedom to the applications that were deployed on it. So applications didn't have to use, for example, the platform's DOT token and force it onto their users, uh, or indeed force any token onto their users. Rather, application platforms are free to just kind of lease out a chunk of the world computer and just sort of use it. Just you put a program on it and let the program run. And if the program decided that tokens weren't an important part of it, then they didn't need to introduce tokens and the users could use it without the concept of tokens. And uh, this, I think, is something that's going to be uh, increasingly important as we move beyond the sort of crypto native uh, users of these blockchain based Web3 services out into uh, the rest of the world who aren't so bothered about owning Bitcoin or Ether and actually just want to use whatever service it is. So this was like a key element of Polkadot. But then secondly to this, we also wanted to introduce things like real scalability, like the ability to run and secure many different transactions, like different kinds of transactions all running at the same time in very high throughput. And, you know, sort of the, the levels of throughput that we could really imagine a, a mainstream global application running at. And this, it so happened that we had an architecture, which we call parachains, the sort of parachains architecture. They might also be known as heterogeneous shards. Or, this is basically, you may be familiar with sharding already. This is essentially splitting, dividing and conquering dividing the workload up into different work streams and then parceling it out 
around the network so that different computers can work on different work streams at the same time and thereby allowing us to get much more work done in the same period of time and in principle with the same overarching computers validator nodes working under the same consensus rules now in addition to this the idea is that these individual partitions of the network these individual work streams can be for different kinds of work so we can now have one set of computers that are just working specifically on nfts they do nfts they can flip nfts around they can decide whether someone can issue you know all this nft related stuff great in another work stream we might do DeFi, and it's like we're just doing DeFi, right we're, we're figuring out contracts for difference we're figuring out liquidations i don't know all this kind of DeFi stuff and another one we might do attestations we might do certifications. We might be handling, you know, hey, someone's actually had a booster shot or two booster shots for a particular, you know, COVID-19. We can do each of these work streams in specialized environments that makes them go much faster than they would do if they were in a more general smart contract environment. And on top of all that, we can do them actually simultaneously. So we can have these work streams be worked on all at the same time. And that, that allows us to really ramp up the amount of performance that we get. And so really, it was a jump, I would say, at least as big as the jump from Bitcoin to Ethereum, where we sort of introduced a number of different pieces of functionality that sort of really set it apart. And that's really what I was trying to make that big leap uh, between uh, Ethereum and Polkadot as well. So a couple of things I'll just kind of, well, your technical ears will burn here, but let me, bear with me. So when you think about uh, all these different layer one protocols, right, just as for our listeners, so there are different ways you could think about interoperability. One would be, well, maybe we build something that kind of links between the different things. And so you can hop almost from one to the other. The other way would be to say, what lies underneath all of that? What is almost below or underneath or the base layer of all of that? So when Gav says layer zero, he's talking about something more fundamental. And so all of these other layer ones can interact or intersect with something that sits really almost, you can think about it as on top of or underneath, doesn't really matter, but it's kind of a meta layer in a way. And that's kind of what was the approach I think that you took, which is really brilliant. Instead of thinking about connecting everything, you're thinking about what is the underlying mechanism they all could kind of almost hook into. And then on sharding, the easiest way to think about this, I think for people who aren't familiar with it is something like SETI at home or folding at home, where you're kind of deploying a variety of different, you're using a massive network and you're basically saying, where can I create specialization? And then I can create economies of scale in a way, right? So you then have these things that are all running in parallel. It's important to know this is not an assembly line. They're not sequential. They're all running in parallel, but you're creating this kind of specialization that enables more efficiency. So that's kind of the, I think the brilliant innovation around parachains is that concept. But it's probably easiest understood as something like for anyone who's ever done SETI at home or folding at home, you understand the power of using a little bit of your CPU to basically help this broader project. Uh, and then imagine if you could work on a specific part of that all the time and you had a network working on that with you and then others in the network were working on other things that were also important to the um, operations of the entire overall project. I just wanted to lay out a couple of those things there, but it's absolutely fascinating. And there's clear links here into the philosophy you have around Web3. So maybe we can transition into that for a bit and say, you clearly were onto something with this idea that it isn't just about linking layer ones together or building another layer two that can make the layer ones faster or whatever, maybe link them through there. It was about looking at something more fundamental. And I, I loved what you said about almost the divorcing from the necessity of tokens, because tokens to some extent are what keep people 
well, you can think about it like a trap in a way. You're kind of stuck in a particular system because you need the token in order to engage with the system. But if you remove that constraint, then there's even more user choice and freedom and how you interact with the protocol and what you can do with it. So maybe uh, we can transition a bit into talking just about Web3, which came first. Your concept around Web3 is where, you know, did that lead you to build all this amazing stuff? Or was it more that that evolved in parallel as you observed what you thought was needed to make the system operate and function more smoothly and more efficiently and, and more freely? When I think back to like, you know, April 2014, it, this was before we had certainly before ethereum had um, done its crowd sale it was before we'd finalized the protocol so it was pretty early days and i could see that the way if we wanted to allow people to you know deploy smart contracts in principle like you know these turing complete computer programs into ethereum the wider idea was to build decentralized applications we were still young then things were still very much uh, in flux ideas had yet to really crystallize but generally speaking, we understood that we had this, you know, ability to do Turing complete computation within on a decentralized system. And that meant that we could create, therefore, applications, some kinds of applications, and they would become decentralized applications, unstoppable applications, whatever you want to call them. And it was when I thought about this sort of got me thinking, well, is it just a function of Ethereum or is, does it need more than just Ethereum? because I'd already been a technologist all of my life that I can remember and started coding when I was eight years old. I followed technological trends. You know, I, I've seen peer-to-peer, -peer, I, I, you know, I was around when, when there was the Napster revolution, um, followed by BitTorrent, you know, and I've seen projects like uh, Freenet and what, what, what not. And then Bitcoin, when it eventually, when it arrived, I was aware of like the concept of peer-to-peer -peer technologies and how these offered an alternative to, you know, to more centralized architectures, the sorts of architectures for what it's worth that I was taught at university. It's like, you know, 98, 99, 2000. This is how professors are teaching you how to architect software. And it was refreshing. I could also see how this could provide fundamental differences to what you could do with software and the guarantees that software gave you. When you're talking about centralized software, your guarantees are only as good as the centralized entity that's running them, yeah? Because they can change anything they want and they don't have to tell you. So with decentralized software, you get these greater, stronger guarantees. And I could see that was happening even before Bitcoin. But when, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum came along, then I could see that, wow, you know, we can extend these guarantees into arbitrary rule sets. And that was quite, that was quite impressive. That was, uh, that was very mind opening. Was it all that we needed? And I didn't, even then, I didn't think that it was. Like, I, I still felt there was a, a need for just a broader publication system, like something like BitTorrent, where you could actually say, here's a bunch of data to the world. And you could refer to that data in a cryptographically strong way. Similarly, something a bit like sort of PGP or Arima, like something that allows us to send datagrams from one individual, one machine, one person to another with guaranteed end-to-end -end encryption. Not end-to-end -end encryption like, yeah, WhatsApp kind of gives you end-to-end -end encryption or, or they say they do. And, you know, you have to trust WhatsApp because you can't look at the software code. You can't see which keys are being used. No, actual end-to-end -end encryption that you can verify. So I could see that these were reasonable, like useful services that we would need that were separate to the blockchain. And it was really from this that the idea of Web3 came from. It was the concept of an application platform that went beyond any individual technology, it went beyond Ethereum, it went beyond Bitcoin, it went beyond BitTorrent, it went beyond any of this stuff to give you a general smorgasbord 
of protocols, formats, and technologies that you could pick and choose in order to create the decentralized service or application that you wanted to create, you know, without having to be beholden to any individual platform. Because of course, even if it's a decentralized platform, if you're beholden to just one, then there is still that level of centralization. You've still got centralization of mindset, centralization of potentially a software development team, centralization of governance and all the rest of it. Then after, you know, Ethereum took a lot of my, my mind space for a few years. And then, but towards the end of, I guess, like mid 2016, late 2016, I got thinking about, you know, what will Ethereum 2 look like? And is this something that maybe there is something that I can do um, that, that is separate to Ethereum, that is beyond Ethereum 2, that does something different? I didn't particularly want to like do Ethereum 2, but that wasn't Ethereum 2. I wanted to like see if I could present something to the world sort of under my own belt. And that's really where Polkadot came from. It was like, I didn't want to do like homogenous sharding to make a smart contract platform, be able to process more transactions per second. Rather, what I wanted to do is like, see if we can explore new territory rather than making an existing product a bit faster. Can we create a whole new class of products? Like, can we create something that hasn't been done yet? So that's where this heterogeneous sharded multi-chain Polkadot came from. And it also seemed to me that because we could allow lots of different blockchains, different kinds of chains doing different kinds of things with different teams behind them and different economies, we could allow for experimentation in the direction of Web3 much faster because you don't want to settle on one particular set of design parameters immediately. And even Ethereum with its Turing complete programming language was still settling on one specific set of design parameters. You have to. The more that you can like enable many different design parameters to be tried out and tested in a real world environment, ideally uh, plugged in uh, securely um, so they're able to operate and interoperate so that you don't, one doesn't have any advantage over any other for legacy reasons, then we can find and quickly come to a, you know, better technology to act as the underlying one of the underlying systems for this like new horizon web three. You know, Gabby, you, you, um, you talked there a, a little bit about sort of some of these inherent centralizing tendencies that go beyond just, you know, creating the smart contract platform and all these other aspects that need to be resolved. And web three, which you, you really did help to popularize has, has suddenly become a buzzword and everyone's talking about it. And we've had some critiques come of that. One, you've got you know, Jack Dorsey sort of arguing that it's all about VCs and so forth, and he's in a sort of, sort of a silly Twitter fight with Chris Dixon. But the one that, that really sort of, I think, had quite a bit of impact was Moxie Malenspike's commentary recently. In my simplified version of it is this sort of goal of peer-to-peer networks is never attainable because it's so inefficient for everybody to run their own web server, for example, that the, the sheer inefficiency of having so many nodes you're obviously well aware of all those challenges and this is part of what you're dealing with. So can you talk through what your retort to that would be and how Polkadot would be able to resolve that fundamental inefficiency issue that comes with, you know, so many nodes having to manage their own stuff? I think, you know, we live in a world where convenience is king and this must not be forgotten. But in my mind, the question is, was there ever any value in running your own website? Like, sure, in the early days, you have no choice but to run your own website. I remember doing it when I was like 16, 17. And then, you know, GeoCities came along. It's GeoCities, right? Yeah, I think it was, right? Almost the very first. (laughs) I remember that. We'll show on our age. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you have to host your own web server. These guys will do it for you. Right. I mean, look, 
I'm, I'm all for if the product is still good, if it fulfills what you need and it's convenient, great. That's just product development. That's a good thing. Yeah. I think like that many people got much advantage from running that. Like I think the product was effectively equivalent, whether you ran your own web server or whether you put it on GeoCities, it didn't matter. Hmm. Uh, it was the same thing. Now, fast forward to present day. How often does it go before you've heard of the next, you know, 50,000 uh, credit cards have been leaked yeah. from some major institution? A bank has suffered a hack. A politician's emails have been hacked. Our infrastructure is at the whim of the highest bidder or a ruthless nation state. We cannot afford to base our infrastructure on fundamentally flawed centralized technologies. I mean, we, we literally cannot afford like civilization. As we know it, the liberal order that the West has pioneered uh, will, will fail if we do this. Our democratic systems will crumble. Information will just increasingly become disinformation. Trust will be forever eroded. We need better systems. And this is really, in my mind, one of the very important fixes to this. In some sense, what we're fixing is like the ability for us to be able to have credible expectations about what our actions in the world, which is increasingly online, right? Our actions by and large, whether it's with each other, companies or governments, it happens online. We no longer go to the post office to collect a pension. We no longer go to the bank to put in a deposit. It doesn't work that way. And slept walked into this kind of situation where we're relying on this, you know, super, super centralized model that where the, the product simply isn't right. It's flawed. It's no good if the bucket is cheap and convenient, but it's got a hole in the right. bottom. <laughs> we are starting to realize that our, our various buckets have got holes in the bottom and we need to look for buckets that don't. And so I think we're in a slightly different situation and where we are as, as a civilization, we are as humanity starting to look for more hole-free buckets. What I think we're sort of, at the moment, the, the whole free buckets, that they are kind of whole free, but they're very small and they don't carry as much water as we would like. And, you know, they're not very convenient. The handles are kind of a bit rubbish to carry. So we've got a way to go, but we're on the path and things are um, getting increasingly polished. We're seeing, you know, much better user experiences. We're seeing far higher levels of transaction throughput. And I think it's only really a matter of time before Moxie's sort of slight sad reckoning that, that convenience trumps everything, maybe even, you know, our own security. I've got a more optimistic view when it's becomes so clear that the new model is just a fundamentally better solution. It provides fundamentally better guarantees for your expectations than the old model, that it will drive developers and it will drive user interface, user experience experts. And it will just basically drive everything towards better basing their technologies and their products and their solutions on this uh, underlying, less flawed technology. And just to sort of cap it, I mean, to take a specific example, Ethereum is decentralized as far as the sort of blockchain goes. It's a terribly centralized application platform, right? If you want to use an Ethereum application, you go through MetaMask, right? Well, who's MetaMask? Well, MetaMask uses Infura. Well, who runs Infura? Well, you know, it's, it's a single company with a single CEO that can turn it off or get it wrong at any moment. This is sort of owing to, actually, I think Vitalik said something fairly similar. It's like getting it properly decentralized is hard. We're working on it, but it's hard. And yeah. it's important that we don't lose sight of why we're doing all this in the first place. It needs to be decentralized. It, it's pretty much pointless if it's not.
And one of the ways that we can ensure that that we get the right product is by ensuring that the technology is easy to integrate, that things like light clients work, that they work in browser or they work within a web page. So that when it comes down to the user and using it on their mobile phone, using it loading up a web page, they see the same thing. It looks just like it did before. It's, it's like a bank interface or it's like a Twitter interface. You know, it's an interface that they recognize. Behind the scenes, it's doing all the heavy lifting. It's connecting to lots of peers. It's going and checking things. It's checking proofs and da 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 It's doing all of the important stuff. But that's, that's stuff that technologists can build. What we need to make sure is that the product utilizes this technology, technology gets built, and that users understand the difference between going to Facebook for their news and going to you know, the decentralized reputation, web of trust-based uh, news service that you know, is probably mm. to come. You're preaching to the choir here about the need to do this. We spend a lot of time talking on this show about the dangers of what we've built as a society, and, and I agree with you wholeheartedly. What I suppose we're all trying to grapple with, and you clearly are going there, is like, what is the motive? What drives people in this space? And here's Moxie on the one hand saying, convenience kills everything, and people are so willing, to your point, to just give up security for that. And you're arguing no, because I think there's a growing awareness and a growing need. I suppose the question I would have is like, who actually is going to be the driving actors that push us to that model? And there's a couple of questions in that. One is, will just users just on their own migrate to decentralized systems? And, and happily do so because they'll start to get awareness and to your point, be educated about these issues? Or is it going to be a decision by policymakers who set rules and say, look, this is, we can't run under the Facebook empire anymore. We've got to move over to this system where you can't be abused. Or do we build systems where, and this is, I think, one of the key challenges, where the business model is incentivizing people to go after this? We come back to this all the time, right? That, that ultimately, it really was Google who got there, uh, realizing that there was this algorithmic functionality that they could apply to then extract data from all these users and sell that to advertisers. And it just became that feedback loop that was just so, so appealing to shareholders, essentially. And that drove us as capitalism. How do we get to the same flywheel effect where investors are like, oh man, I want to get into that thing. But the payoff is not built around that extractive model. It's literally about creating this sort of opportunities at the base layer for users to, to take control and that there's a business to be run on top of that that's profitable. Do you guys think at Polkadot about who's going to come in and make money on top of this? And can you give us a sense of what that world looks like? We don't really consider the specifics of who is going to make money from what. We prefer to give people the tools and the best tools that we can give them and see what they can build and what they can bring to market. More generally to your point, I think it really is about uh, alignment of incentives. And yeah, we saw that like there was, there became a sort of alignment of incentives between Google and its users and its users sort of handed Google over their data for the free services. You know, they, people like the free service. I, I still use the free service, great services. <laughs> and Google uh, used the user's data and it was uh, in some sense very well aligned. I think it, it, in retrospect, it was of questionable. You mean it was evil? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if all of the users quite understood the ramifications of sharing their online activities, or indeed that they were sharing their online activities in such a way. I wouldn't want to name Google as like the worst offender of all of them. Though. I'm going to side with you on that as well. 
But I think overall it, it is about alignment of incentives. And I think our elected representatives, our lawmakers, if they are not already beginning to understand, will very soon begin to understand how important it is to architect our information society on technology that is not uh, immediately susceptible to influence or breakage from foreign and maybe not well-aligned entities. Similarly, I think the, what would you say, the broadly speaking thought leaders of society, I think are getting there as well. I think it takes, still takes education, but for them to understand the difference between, you know, building things on flawed centralized systems and building things on decentralized systems that give legitimate guarantees. For the wider population that maybe don't think too much, don't want to think too much about it, I have an optimistic view. And I, I think that between the sort of, let's say, sort of government element and the, uh, and the thought leadership element and, you know, the sort of fabric of society, if one side pulls and the rest isn't really against it, it sort of just tends to go along with it. The same way that, you know, sort of everyone eventually got on Facebook. It's like the beginning of Facebook, not that many people were on it. It was the sort of cool kids that figured out like, wow, look, here's a Web2 thing. And it's kind of cool. You can say your photos and like tag people. And ah. They got their, you know, friends and their family and it, it sort of spread that way. And it wasn't, yeah, there was like an underlying service to it, but a lot of it was really just about following where the people that had, you know, yeah. sort of introduced you to it, but following these kinds of these cool kids. A lot of society kind of works on this, and especially if the government is sort of ushering people into the sorts of information hygiene that we really ought to be as a society aware of, I think we've got a fighting chance. And that's it, right? I mean, these things aren't mutually exclusive. And I was dragged from Friendster to Facebook, kicking and screaming, you know, but I eventually did migrate because people were just more on the one thing than the other thing, and then the other thing died, and then, you know, there we were. But I do think it's a combination of these things. You can have a user interface that's very, you know, convenient, quote unquote, and familiar to people that is uh, backended by a decentralized system. Most people are not going to really know the difference or understand it. If they're presented with the choice, I think they're going to make the choice to have more agency, to be more empowered, to not have their engagement beholden to a centralized system. And the question I think for policymakers is going to continue to be, are you going to continue to prop up legacy systems? that have very clear, known, exploitable flaws that are not really being fixed because the incentives are to bake those in and keep them? Or are you going to allow for the development of a better, I, mean, I think very, we're all in agreement on that, system that will have different you know, concerns that are raised, some of which are being addressed now, some of which are ridiculous, some of which are speculative, some of which we probably don't know yet, but is certainly addressing the core problems of what's come before, which is really not serving people and is putting way too much power. We're trying to go at this through antitrust is not really the solution. I think it's, that's kind of where this has landed, right? To some extent for those who really understand the challenges around having all this power centralized in one place, that tends to be their avenue of attack, but that doesn't solve the problem. Having three monopolists versus one is not really the solution. So you could have no monopolists. I do think all these things are going to work together in concert. And like you say, my view has been for a while that we just didn't pay enough attention in the ecosystem to that convenience factor, like the familiarity people wanted to feel when they engage with these things. We made it, it was hard. It was really hard to understand it. It was hard to do. It was hard to do it safely. And then the perception of all the risk you were engaging in and even doing it in the first place was a deterrent. But now that a lot of that is being solved, I think we're seeing more and more people waking up to, oh, 
So I do get the benefits that everyone keeps talking about. I don't have to really understand them, but I know what they are, at least philosophically, and I support that. And the engagement model for me, the onboarding, all that is not as hard as it used to be. It's something I can get my head around. I can actually understand that. It just remains to be seen and where all of these things align and what, like you said, I love the way you phrase that fabric of society. If people, if there's not a lot of resistance on the other side, then maybe it's slow, but you can see this migration that I certainly think that we're starting to see get more and more momentum and acceleration behind. So I guess another question, right? So one of the things that comes up a lot that is for policymakers anyway, that, that leans the other way as well, at least with centralized systems, we know who to blame. <laughs> like we have identified you know, companies or people or whatever it is, and we know who to go after, who to hold accountable. So is the end game here that that all just dissolves, that things are so decentralized, there really is no, you know, lead developer, there's no founder, there's really nobody who's even like subpoenable or, or, you know, can be held to task or to account if things go wrong. Is that the goal? Or do you think that's inevitable? Or do you think that's almost impossible to achieve? Because there is so much pressure to have that identifiable group or person or entity or whatever it is? Well, I certainly hope that they don't start holding uh, lead developers accountable. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have to like look a little bit uh, deeper at what reason, what would we hope to achieve by holding, you know, any particular individual accountable? And how does that fit into a new model of the world where we have potentially discord within the world, like within the broader, uh, wider world, such that those individuals may not be the ones that are the more powerful entities at play. So what I'm kind of getting at is if we have an individual with limited actual effective power because they, you know, maybe they're an influential figure, but the system in, in and of itself is decentralized. And we see that decentralized system being attacked by a far larger um, entity. Is it reasonable to hold the individual to account because they didn't make it secure enough? In the same way that we would hold like a bank's CEO who has absolute power of everything that's in the bank, modulo the shareholder, whatever the shareholder agreement says, the same way that we would hold a bank CEO to task about what maybe what some employees of the bank have been getting up to with, in breach of regulations or if the bank were attacked and and its security systems were not found to be um, sufficiently strong. And in my mind, it's really, we have to take like a fairly pragmatic approach here about what it is that we're trying to solve. In my mind, the world as it stands, we have to accept that when we get to these levels of systems, systems on which society as a whole is sort of working under, we have to understand that there are the attack scenario isn't so much that the, the individual that is running the system is malicious. Maybe they're incompetent or maybe there is some level of incompetence, but a lot of the time it's, it's really simply down to the underlying centralized architecture of the human organization as much as the technological solution. And that's what gives rise to the ability for nefarious, potentially quite well-financed and powerful actors to sort of break it and uh, corrupt it for their own means. So overall, I think from what I've seen of the regulators over the last like six to 12 months, I think, you know, it's not an unreasonable line that they're taking, which is basically that if it's legitimately decentralized, there isn't an individual or an organization that's actually exercising true power over the system, then we will accept the system as like kind of a force of nature. And if we have a problem with something that happens in it, then we will go after the individuals that are actually making that thing happen the individuals like making the transactions or, or, or whatever it is. Actual bad actors, yeah. 
I think this is opens up a whole other line of inquiry here because there's like there's like how do we define what risk is and what is the best model for society? Like the nice thing about open decentralized systems is that they evolve. Nazim Taleb's idea, right? It evolves to an anti-fragile state. So if you have this sort of mindset, this I'm going to shut it all down if it gets risky, then you're actually not leveraging all of that innovative power that comes from that system. I think one of the biggest challenges we face is actually a shift in mindset. I think that the whole security the upset kind of idea of building firewalls and just making bigger and bigger ones around centralized honeypots that hackers just inevitably figure out how to get over every time is just a race to the bottom that's costing us so much money. And therefore, we have to let go of it, right? We have to recognize that it's the economics of security that need to change as much as anything else and that out of that, better systems will come. That, I think, is a big leap, though. We've been stuck in this Web2 mindset and we've got an enormous amount, to my point earlier about, of business interests that have built business models around this concept. And to your point, CEOs who are sort of completely obsessed with that responsibility as well, right? It's got a long way to go. I'm with you. I hope that the penny is dropping. I can use that term because I've not got an Englishman here who knows that Americans get confused by the penny drop. They say light bulb. I get confused by that. <laughs> well, because you've got also, you're international, but like, yeah, it's a weird look for people. Like, what do you mean by penny drop? Anyway. The penny is dropping, I think. There is an awareness that's starting to happen in the world. Let's hope we move fast enough to get there. And Gavin, keep sort of working as hard as you can, you know, along with everybody else in this space to build the systems that gets there. So we have to call it short right now. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to having you at Consensus in June. I think that having a polka dot presence there is going to be fun. And we'll have to do this again sometime on Money Reimagined. So thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Shira. Thanks so much, Gav, for coming on. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. That's all we have time for for now. Join us again next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guest Gavin Wood. Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>